Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Peter Lord, co-founder and creative director of Ardman Animations. So, so happy to be here. This is wonderful. Um, I have to say, the whole distinguished address title is quite daunting, but but I've got I've got over that now, uh, and I'm ready. So I had this idea. I thought I thought of a nice turn of phrase. I thought, oh, um, getting going to letting go. I thought that was a nice elegant phrase. Uh, of course, the implication is it covers my entire career, which, as Heather's just reminded me, is is damn nearly 50 years. Blimey, nearly 50 years. So um, so it's quite a lot to squeeze into uh, to a half an hour. And there's quite a lot of th- uh, things I'd like to cover. Um, I want to talk about, if I remember, about uh, serendipity and chance, which are very important. I want to talk about the simple joy of creation, which I think George has already referred to. Um, I, I hope to touch on how a commercial endeavour can sort of naturally grow out of a purely um, artistic one. Uh, I will talk about the inheritance of ideas, because that's very dear to me, important to me. And finally, uh, at the end of all that, I want to talk a bit about employee ownership, which is as a business goal, which, uh, which, which is a thing that we've done, as Heather was tell- telling you uh, a couple of years ago, and of which I'm very proud. And so I'll talk about that. Oh, and as I go along, I also thought it would be polite to scatter credits here and there to the, the other people that made this all this possible. So I decided... Good. I decided to start not at the beginning, not with the getting going, nor yet with the letting go. I decided to start <clears throat> right in the middle. Um, now, uh, here we have the uh, uh, the young, the youthful Nick Park um, with his first Oscar, with Ardman's first Oscar as well. And I do realise, as I say that, that's quite a good thing to be able to say, actually. Like, oh, oh not, not just we won an Oscar, but our first Oscar, the first of several. So this is Nick uh, with his Oscar. And I feel, for me, it's like in in the middle of our story. And that's to say that we as a company, as a creative studio, we got going. We got ahead of steam. Um, We had a reputation. And prior to that, there were the the scrabbling around years, the... uh, the, 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 um, nearly going bust years, um, the taking on anything at all that that had any um, income attached to it. There were those years. Uh, And then gradually, as I I suggest, over sort of about 10 years, we we got this confidence. We became a a small community. There were about, I feel there were about eight or 10 of us when Nick won the first Oscar, small community. um, And in truth, that was perhaps only a quarter of the way through Ardman's story, but I'm still calling it the middle because, um, because because it was it was so important to us because, as I say, we'd reached a 
no, not a plateau. A plateau is not a good word. That's just complacency. We've reached a sort of a fixed point. We've reached a point of confidence. Now, the film that won the Oscar, uh, I'd like to show you a brief clip of Nick's film. So play that clip, please. If you try to compare the situations and the environment that you live here with the environment that you live in Brazil, there is a big difference. Here, you live in a very small place with all the technological advances possible. You have uh, everything sorted out, double glazing, you know, your, your heating and everything in Brazil, but you don't have space. In Brazil, you have space. Although you don't have all this technological, you know, double glaze and things like that, and uh, you know, uh, but you have space. And uh, we need space to live. We need space to feel that we are part of the world, not a kind of uh, piece of object in a box. So there we go. Creature Comforts, uh, Nick Park's film, and our first Oscar. And, um, you know, and we were hilariously ill prepared for that i would say uh, certainly my 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 uh, tuxedo certainly came from oxfam uh, and i've seen better years i'm not sure when nicky got his nick, nick may have bought his no hide it hide it i'm sure um and uh so there we were in los angeles with this short short but i must say glorious film um and we won the oscar uh, and then we hadn't the faintest idea what to do and um now, as a seasoned pro, I know that what you do is you, you, you briefly attend the dinner afterwards, the governor's ball, and then you r rush out as quickly as possible to some, not one, but several fancy parties. That's the, that's the thing to do. But we didn't know about that. So we went to the governor's ball with the, with the Oscar. We sat there, um, had our dinner, and then discovered that everyone else had gone because they'd all dashed off to parties. And we had no parties to go to, so we, we went back to the hotel where... At least they were kind enough to open the bar again for us and give us some champagne. So we weren't expecting this. It, um, we didn't. We never made films to win Oscars for heaven's sake. We, we made films for their own sake. But what an amazing development that was! So Nick, the, the director, um, I've called, I've given him my first credit because the simple truth is that that his joining the company, which was I think in 84, 85, I think it was, um, was crucial. So, so, so crucial to the shape of the development of the company. And now I know that when people talk about um, our man and the style, they're very much talking about the style that Nick um, exemplified there in Creature Comforts. But that film also um, has several elements to it, which are, which are quite important to the things I'm talking about. Um, the fact that it's stop-motion animation, the fact that it's clay animation, plasticine animation, and the use of the real soundtracks. So all those things that Nick was playing with are um, things that we'd, we'd already started to, to develop. And, th and those are three of the things that became the hallmarks of the Ardman company. Um, so now the next slide is quite... This reminds me of what um, uh, George was talking about, really, because here we are, here we see the teenage uh, Peter Lord and David Sproxton. And um, any of you that know anything about filmmaking at all might recognise in the middle of the picture that strange shape is a film camera. 
and it's pointing downwards and that tells me that we were making um, one of our first ever films which was um, a conventional cell animated film so we were when we made that film we were schoolboys we had no training at all i think we were 17. Uh, we had no training there were very few books around but we read whatever we could and the, it proved to be fundamental again to our career as we made a short film and here i have to give my second credit and there are credits everywhere as i say and that credit really is to um, the BBC producer, Patrick Dowling, who uh, had the nerve or the, or, the, or the inspired vision to pay for what we'd done, to buy our first film. And at the same time as I credit Pat Dowling, I should also need to credit uh, Dave's father, Vernon, who frankly put us in the way of Pat Dowling. So, the, so um, these things are highly connected. But anyway... Never mind that slight dash of nepotism in there. The truth is that we got a chance to show our, our, our very primitive work to a BBC producer and he bought it and showed it on TV. And in doing that, that gave us just the encouragement to continue. You know, I'm not saying for one moment that we did it for the money or, for, or indeed for the career. Neither is true. We didn't know, we didn't know that the career was coming. Um, we weren't thinking in terms of career, we were just thinking in terms of making films and showing films to an audience and this is what we did. So uh, I think I'll show you the next clip please, which is the film that we were, that we were making in this photograph. So 70 years old, um, just starting out on animation as a, new, as a new hobby, and I think hobby is the right word for it. Um, and uh, working in a very a very traditional fashion uh two-dimensional two-dimensional old-fashioned hand-drawn animation so let's play that clip please See, that's what you need to launch your career. It's, um, it's very, it, it, I find it fascinating to watch um, from many points of view, not least because it's technically uh, inept. You know, it, it was shot on film on that, on that camera that we can see here. Um, and if you look objectively, there's a strange flare which comes from the surface of the celluloid that we were drawing on. And then the animation itself is, is pretty lame, you know, uh, and the timing is poor. But, but, um, it's quite a good idea. It's quite a good idea done quite well. And that was enough for us to get our foot in the door and start what, what became a career. But it's not where our career went at all. Uh, no, we... we we moved in quite another direction. We moved into the direction of three dimensions. And uh, this picture, this photograph, shows Ray Harryhausen. Some of you will know that name very well. A few sad, benighted souls won't recognise it. Ray Harryhausen it was the 
um, a stop motion genius who created who created all the animation in a series of sort of fantasy movies featuring uh, Sinbad and Jason and the Argonauts, these kind of these kind of films. Um, this is Ray as a young man, and that's not King Kong he's working with, but it is Mighty Joe Young. And Ray was, um, when he was a young man, I think he was I don't know, 15 or something, he saw the original King Kong when it was first released in um, Los Angeles and was blown away by, the, by the, the miracle of it all, by the way that this, somehow this, this monster, this, this ferocious monster was brought to life and was seen interacting with Chinese people and fighting with the Tyrannosaurus Rex and all this sort of amazing stuff. That was what inspired Ray, and Ray then um, carried that tradition forward. I met him, and it's sort of great pride and sort of wonder to me, really, to think that I with Ray Harryhausen, the man who shook hands with Willis O'Brien, who created um, King Kong. And Willis O'Brien was right there at the start, in the start of the 20th century. He was there uh, inventing the technique of stop-motion animation, puppet animation. So Ray took it on, and for about 50 years, he was a one-man industry, most ex extraordinary talent and, and incredible drive. He did on his own. You know, when you're watching a movie now, you watch, you watch your average movie, you're, any old movie that's got, you know, 10,000 uh, robots killing 10,000 aliens, that, that kind of movie. And um, if, when it gets to the end, the credits then run for about five minutes with all the people that have made that possible. The, the hundreds and hundreds of people that made it possible. Ray Harryhausen did it himself on his own. And um, as, a, as a boy, when I was at school, I saw this one, which was um, Jason and the Argonauts. And I just thought that that was, um, I don't know what word to use, uh, magic, you know, unbelievable. How on earth, how is it possible to put this kind of image on the screen? And the answer is that obviously the man, the man on the st stones there was um, fighting thin air. Uh, and Ray came back, back to the studio and projected the film of the fighter frame by frame and then sort of matched it to these foreground puppets of the skeletons. And it's an extraordinary piece of work. It's, it's, uh, it's, hard, to, it's hard to exaggerate that the sheer um, mental, the focus of Ray to, to, to do that, uh, especially in the pre-digital era. I was lucky enough to go to his um, 90th birthday party in, the, the, um, in London at the, Royal Festival Hall, I think it was, and so he was there, and there were credits, there were um, passionate votes of thanks from people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and James Cameron and all these, and Peter Jackson himself, all these kind of giants of cinema who were all influenced by this man. So I too was influenced by this man, uh, and I'm delighted to meet him, and here he is late in life when he came into the studio, um, obviously riding a sheep. Um, and I would point out that I didn't ask him to do this, to take this frankly embarrassing position. It was his idea, so, so, so 
a great a great man with a great talent and really influential in the sense that I saw his work as a young man and realized the potential of this art form, the stop motion animation. This this art form where the animator uh, takes a puppet and moves it and takes a frame and moves it and takes a frame and and in this slow um, careful way creates magic, creates life. Uh, however, having having shown you Ray and having gone on about him a bit and enthused about him, um, having showed you uh, man, the two-dimensional animation, we didn't go with two-dimensional animation, nor did we ever pursue exactly what Ray Harryhausen was pursuing, which was this kind of special effects work, really, of bringing monsters and stuff to life. I've personally never animated a dinosaur or a monster in my life. Never managed that. No, instead, I go on to a, another branch of the same business, if you like. And I was, this is, um, this is um, the Magic Roundabout, created by Sarah Janlow. Oh, and I should have said, note to self, I should have said that I was crediting Ray Harryhausen as absolutely another of those key, the third key person to thank for our career. And I think I need, here need to stick together Serge Downlow, who created um, the Magic Roundabout, Ivor Wood, who worked on the Magic Roundabout and then went on to do the Wombles and Postman Pat. And then people like Oliver Postgate and Peter Furman, that George mentioned, and Buren Hardwick. And these were the people that made the films of my, actually not childhood, but early early teens for me, or maybe about about 11 or 12 when I started, when I started watching these things, um, they weren't made for me, I know that, but um, I was fascinated by the technique. Uh, and, and frankly, to be perfectly honest, to make something like that, something like the Magic Roundabout, seemed possible, whereas to make a film like one of Ray Harryhausen's films seemed and was utterly impossible to uh, to somebody in the early 20s. So um, I credit that this generation of, of um, puppet animators who made a whole series of films that were popular when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, when that was, that was pretty well the only way between the, this sort of film and with Ray Harryhausen's film, it was pretty well the only way that you could watch a three-dimensional animated character on screen. Now the same job is done by computers, of course, and, um, and we see three-dimensional animated characters the whole time, just often uh, so cleverly done that it's invisible that they are animated, but they are. Um, but these were the guys that influenced us. But still, but still, although this was something to aspire to, it wasn't quite where we went. We went in another direction again, and I'll ask you to play the next clip, please. So there we have 
morph, morph and chasm, yucking it up. Uh, that is from a very recent um, morph story. So although he was created in in heaven in 76, blimey, 1976, yes, uh, he's still going today, uh, still being animated, um, certainly in 2020, and I hope again in 2021. So going strong. What's the thing about morph? What's the key thing? Um, plasticine, modeling clay, frankly, that was the that was the, the special thing about morph. Um, and when you work with work with modeling clay, oh, I haven't, I have a visual aid right here. Where is it? There it is. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, there's my visual aid. Now, see the size of him in my, in my hand. Um, he, he is the size he appears to be on the screen. And I just wanted to briefly mention that animation is the most magnificent thing to do. It is because it is godlike. I will say nothing less, like my claim is nothing less. You create a world and you populate the world and you bring it to life. And that is an incredibly powerful thing to do. Wonderful, joyous, powerful thing to do. Even doing it badly is powerful. Um, and you, kids, you know, very young children can get a lot of pleasure and satisfaction from animating, okay, plasticine if they're feeling um, ambitious, but Lego, you know, Playmobil, any old thing, anything. They take a, to take a, a toy, a puppet, and go through this, this process and then bring it to life. I mean, what could be more powerful? You are, you are a god. And plasticine proved to be particularly good at it. Partly, I guess, because it was so um, uh, accessible. Yeah, the sort of puppets that, that Ray Harryhausen made, that, that those dinosaurs that in King Kong and so on, they required real skill to make those puppets. I couldn't start to do that. And they would take skill and time and expertise. Um, Morph is just, was just then, and it is here in my hand, just made of modeling clay, nothing else. So, well, it's quick and cheap to make. You know, yes, you need to be good. You need to be a good sculptor. It's quick and cheap to make. Uh, and because he's made of clay, and because the size of him, and because the size of he's in my hand, uh, it did seem like an excellent um, uh, metaphor for, for for the animator being a god. And later on, uh, I made a short film to celebrate that. So let's have a look at the next clip, please. There's the, there's the process right there, you know, the, the uh, lump of clay, the hand that touches it and brings it to life, and that's the joy of animation. I say clay, um, uh, I, my next credit, my, my, my fifth credit, goes to, goes to um, this bearded cove here. This is William Harbert. William Harbert, um, a man from, actually, I think it was a Geordie, actually, I think it came from North Shields originally, but he ended up in... Bath. At Bath, he was the, um, um, the head teacher at an art school, and he created plasticine, which is my, my, other, my other visual aid. Mmm, plasticine. Yeah, sorry, that's it. Uh, uh, William Harbour created plasticine. He created it so that um, 
artist could work on the, work on the sculptures and, and then stay flexible. Uh, whereas, of course, conventional clay dries out. Uh, and yeah, fantastic invention, wonderful invention. And um, he had a factory later by the canal side in, in Bathampton, where he made this when he made this stuff, and it was running up until I think the 80s when they sadly they went bust, which is a real shame because it was a great, great company. Oh, I've got some great pictures of yes, yes, there is a they had a um, when I went to visit them, they had a museum of all their packaging down the years. This is just the tip of the iceberg, and it was a wonderful, extraordinary celebration of graphic design throughout the 20th century. Uh, and actually, I don't know. There's that ch that child happily there making a dog. Um, when they marketed it to to me and, and Dave Sproxton, because we were working together making Morph, uh, the packets then were quite boring. But on one side they had uh, happy children making um, you know an elephant or something out of plastic, and on the other side they had a bloke with a beard and a smock who was clearly an artist, and he was making a a, a bust of uh, you know, some famous person. So that was, it was marketed as being for children and for artists equally. And it just proved to be a really, really um, essential part of our career because, because animating with modeling clay was the, was the thing we did that was special. Uh, I just put, I put this in because it's, it's a reference to the, uh, reference to the God, the God thing and plasticine all in one. Excellent Larson cartoon. Oh, it makes me laugh. So as I said, it was um, um, yes, yes. Oh, sorry, no, that one. That one. That one. Now, okay. Now, here's a very important one. I think I'm going to call this number six of essential influences. When Dave and I were still at school, so we were sixteen or seventeen, we saw this this thing on TV. Um, and what it was was a lump of modeling clay that grew uh, and routinely uh, ate another lump of modeling clay and then they both then they both squished together uh, and then one then then one grew into a tree and then the yeah, one grew into a dinosaur it was just it was just random evolutions and in fact the the film was called um, clay or the origin of species and we saw a clip of it on TV, and it's funny to think now in the 21st century that when you saw something on TV back in the day, you didn't, you couldn't see it again. I mean, it was almost impossible because there was, they didn't do repeats, certainly not of children's TV, they didn't do repeats, uh, and there was no convenient home recording. So really, we saw this, and it flashed by, uh, and all it did was leave um, an image on the retina or on the mental retina, an idea. It left an idea. And I wanted to, you know, I'm talking, I, I'm very aware, I'm talking about all the people that, that have in different ways made it possible for us to do what we do. This was really important. Um, I never knew who it was by, and only in the era of Google did I one day find it. After lots of false starts, I found it on Google. Oh God, that was the one, that was the thing I saw. And I saw it was called, um, uh, Clay or the Origin of Species, and I saw the director's name, Eli Noyes, and um, I thought, I assumed, because it's black and white, and it looks frankly super primitive, I, I thought it was 
done you know, ages ago, back in the 50s or something like that. Uh, I looked him up, I looked up Elaine Noyes and was, you know, uh, saddened to find that he died. He'd been a, um, he'd been a, a professor of architecture at Harvard, I think, um, unsurprisingly. But anyway, he died, so that was a shame. Um, because I would have liked to have, you know, thanked him for the, for this single small contribution, this thing that we glimpsed and which gave us, you know, inspired us. To, you know, we, we never made films like this either, but we were inspired to pick up modelling clay and animate it because of this film. And I was talking about this one day at a, a film festival in San Francisco. And after the, the, um, after the show, a man came up to me, this guy, and he said, um, well, I'm Elaine Noyes, and I'm not dead at all. And uh, by Jove, he wasn't. So, um, in fact, not only was he not dead, he was looking pretty good, actually. And uh, I, was, I was so delighted to be able to just thank him for, for the inspiration. So, I'm going to go back down. Okay. So, so here we are, back to, back to Creature Comforts, um, reach, having reached a sort of middle point. And... It's puppet animation, as as inspired by Ray Harryhausen. Um, it's modeling clay, thanks to William Harvest, that invented the damn stuff. It, it's um, modeling clay animated, thanks to Eli Noyes, who suggested it to us. Um, the style of the thing, that that lion talking, was the the words were real. They were unscripted. They were spontaneous from a, a Brazilian student that lived in Bristol, and the idea of taking spontaneously recorded unscripted words and animating to match it. Again, was somebody else's idea. It comes from uh, John and Faith Hubley, American animators, um, and they, they sewed that idea in our heads. Uh, and two people in Bristol, um, Colin Thomas and Bill Mather, both working at the BBC at the time, they took on the idea again, and Colin Thomas commissioned us to make the first film in this series, if you can call it a series, and the first film was Down and Out, um, recorded at the Salvation Army Hospital in Broadweir. Uh, and that film, which again looks incredibly primitive now, was the ancestor of this film, which, which won the Oscars and, and really started our career. So, as I said, the start of our career, uh, and there was a lot more to come. You know, there was, a, there was three more Oscars for Nick. Uh, there was another... I believe sort of nine Oscars for uh, Oscar nominations, I should say, for our men. So plenty of that. Um, there was um, the, we took the same technique onto the big screen and made a whole series of uh, made seven or eight animated feature films. Now nobody, in, no studio in the UK has done anything like that before at that scale. And we've made beloved characters like Sean the Sheep. And we've also done things quite radically different, like 1111, which is a, um, a video game. So we do, we do now, you know, tons and tons of stuff. What can I say? Tons and tons of stuff in many, many styles. Um, and but all at the heart of it, inspired by the uh, future for storytelling, um, a love of animation, because it is a very special way of making a film. It has its, its it has its weird side. It has its challenges. It's not fast, um, but it has this incredible magical godlike power, which I love. So uh, my my uh, my final credit, if you like, 
is um, is everybody else. Because I mean, the, I mean, everyone else are banned, including you, Helen. Because you know, it, it's such a team effort now. You know, Dave and I started it. Nick provided this incredible bolt of energy in the, in the middle years, but then it just became a, a celebration of so many so many hands and brains and eyes that have contributed to this work. I'd just like to show you a clip now. It's it's just fun. It's not it's not um, it's hard to understand sometimes, but it's it is behind the scenes of the film uh, the pirates that we that we made. Oh gosh, about eight or nine years ago now. Uh, and it just is a celebration of, of the, all the people involved. So play that clip, please. Happy days indeed, happy days. And, uh, and there, quite handily, is a picture of the, uh, the crew, the, uh, the, the enormous crew, just, just, just to celebrate how many people are involved and what, a, and what a wonderful process it is. And that takes me quite neatly, I think, to the last thing I was going to refer to. God knows we haven't got long. Um, that when Dave and I came to consider leaving, um, or perhaps put it another way, realised that we would... You know, we were probably going to die one day if we didn't do something about it. That, um, that we wanted the company to carry on in the same spirit. That was the most important thing to us. So, oh, not so. And we thought that all those people that have been invo involved for all those years, um, it's been such a, such a group process, such a collaborative process, that we moved the company into employee ownership. So if you think the alternative would have been uh, some conventional trade sale or something like that, um, and that was, would have been, that's what people do. I, I, mean, I believe, I'm told, although I find it incredible, that people um, start companies with that in mind, with the, with, 
selling it in mind, which is so, so far from the spirit in which we started Arben. We started Arben. Why did we start Arben? We started it so we had a bit of money. Um, we kept it going because it was fun and it was a challenge. Uh, and then and then and then we kept it going because we were really good at it and we were having a lot of fun with it and we were employing people and we felt responsibility to people and we wanted to better the last thing we'd done and, and keep building, you know, scores of reasons. But that's why we did it. And the, the one reason we didn't ever do it and we never dreamt of was to sell it off to make money with it. That was never the plan. So um, we... Uh, we're not saints, right? I certainly, Dave and I both took money out of the company, but we handed the company over so that now it is owned by the employees. It's owned, it's owned by a trust, in fact, and and all the when you're an employee, you are a member of that trust, um, and uh, I'm very proud of it. It's been a, another exciting adventure for us. Um, it's the the partners. As, we, as they're now called, um, yeah, have, have reacted come really, really strongly, getting involved, getting stuck in. Uh, we have a thing like it, we call it a, a partners rep group where they get to, where their voice can be heard by the board and by the managing director. Um, and I'm told, again, I'm told that uh, employee-owned companies are more um, productive and more efficient and often more profitable. And that's great, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. But, but the real point, I think, for us was there's a sense of fairness and a sense of justice and to save this company that, that we frankly um, love so much uh, and, did, and didn't want to see it become just an asset for somebody. Oh, that, that's, there's, there's Dave and me, presumably at the time of the, the big signing. So I think, oh, is that just about right? I think I'm about done. Um, if I rushed through it all, but there we go. Thank you so much, Peter, uh, for such a passionate talk. Um, it's really great to share your journey with us. Um, and um, we've got lots of questions coming in, so I'm going to read them out. First one's from Steve, um, our vice chancellor. Um, he says, thank you. What an engaging, inspiring and honest human story. Um, looking back, do you have any I wish I'd done that memories or regrets? Very few, really, very, very few, very few, actually. Um, in fact, honestly, none. I mean, I think I'm of a optimistic disposition anyway. Um, so in terms of the company, no, honestly, what, what more could you have expected? You know, we, when you think, when you think how small our ambitions were when we started, how simple they were, you know, um, we came to Bristol full time in 76 and set up. Uh, we had a, a very small room above a shop and we did what we could and uh, as I say, as I said before, we scrabbled around a bit. But if you said to those two guys in their early 20s that one day we'd have this, you know, frankly, this empire, this animation empire, um, I, we wouldn't have dreamt of it. It would have seemed absolutely impossible. So no, so no I genuinely have very... Very, very few regrets. Brilliant. We, we've got quite a lot of uh, questions coming in for you, Peter. So um, I hope uh, that yourself and the audience don't mind sticking around a little bit longer. So we're probably <laughs> going to override 
on. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. So um, the next question is from um, Chloe, who says um, uh, she reckons that Ardman hides uh, references or Easter eggs in in the films. And do you have a mm -hmm. favourite? And are, are there any that maybe um, haven't been discovered by the public yet? Oh, blimey, I'm sorry, that's, that, that's a really good question. And I, and let me think about these things. Oh, Lord. And I can't, I can't think of anything hilarious. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm, just, I'm really sorry. I should think of something, but something that's really, like in, in the Pirates, um, we go into um, Charles Darwin's house. Um, to be clear, I respect Charles Darwin as a historical figure very much, but in the film we take the piss out of him outrageously. And um, but his house um, is quite substantial. It's a sort of Gothic mansion somewhere in London, and it's 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 full and worse than all the contents of the British Museum are in there. I think, or the, and the Natural History Museum mostly, actually both. Both natural history and eth ethnography is all stuck in there, uh, and you know, this is so fiddly. There, there was a, a famous fake fossil in the Victorian era. I can't remember its name. I'm sorry. Um, you know, somebody faked it, like like Piltdown down man, but not another fake. Uh, and so the the model makers faithfully reproduced this thing to stick it on Darwin's wall. Now, as I say, is that a joke? No, but it's, it's typical of the sort of thing. I mean, it happens everywhere. When you look at Shaun the Sheep, I was on the, the set of Shaun the Sheep one day, um, and uh, it's very amusing to go on the set because there are rolling fields everywhere. And you, you can stand by the, uh, a hedge like this, lean over the hedge. So I was leaning over the hedge for a comic photograph, and I looked down, and at the bottom of the hedge was um, some piece of um, agricultural machinery, some... Uh, I don't know what it was. A Wurzel grinder or something. Who knows what it was? I don't know. But it was rusted and the farmer had jammed it in a hole in the, in the hedge to keep the sheep in. No one will ever see that. I mean, I don't think they will ever see that. You know, but it's there. And it's there because we love putting them there. That's the truth. And I'm sorry I can't think of much better examples than those. Well, I, I, th I, think, I think that's really brilliant, you know, um... It's, uh, you know, being uh, um, born the year of moth myself in 1976. And uh, I remember after I left Ardman to go to UWE, one of my friends, Andy James, modelled me a moth. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's, still, it's still on my mantelpiece um, 14 years <laughs> later. Um, Amy, <laughs> sorry, go ahead, Peter. Sometimes they survive. Yes. And sometimes, sometimes they crack, and it's because it's, it's weird because everyone thinks plasticine is soft, which it is. Mm. It's bendy, but but it dries out. The oil, the oil dries out, and then sometimes like, one will stand around and they'll just abruptly snap in half, which is quite tragic actually. Yeah, Amy, one of our third year animation students, has a question, um, and it, it's uh, quite a popular one. Uh, what's the one piece of advice? you would give to animators just about to enter the industry? It was very interesting hearing George early on because the way he was talking, the things he was talking about, absolutely, totally rang true to me. I mean, he was absolutely right. Um, you know, what did he say? He said, make, 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 make. It's, it's, it's true, isn't it? I mean, um, because 
there are two reasons to keep make 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 making. One is because you get better at it. Um, it's funny with animation. You know, if you were playing, um, if you were playing a classical instrument, violin, piano, hoping to be in an orchestra, you would practice. Kids practice hours a day, and, and you know, and and hundreds of hours a month. They 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 just do. It's the way it's the way it goes. It's quite accepted and it's normal and so that when they get to um join an orchestra they have done their ten thousand hours of practice they really have they've done so they've done it so much they've just done it uh and and in an ideal world for me an animator would do the same thing an animator would, would animate every day and by doing that just simply uh, acquire the skill in fact i know it happens i mean when i look online now uh, I follow sort of various stop motion groups, and you'll see stuff by amateurs, which is really pretty damn impressive in model making and animation. So, so one reason to keep doing it is to get good. Uh, the other reason to keep doing it is to get your, your name out there, because this is what is obviously possible now that wasn't possible in in our day. Uh, the only way you could get started back in the day was was someone would commission you somehow to, to get stuff on TV. And the first the first animated films that we did for the BBC, I think they paid £25 for them, which was, which was okay, yeah, was at those days. But, you know, you, you don't get rich, but it was, a, it was a way in. But now you don't need that way in, do you? Because you can do it yourself. So I do, I'm a huge fan of the idea of, of just doing it, getting it out there, getting your name known, and networking, 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 it's so important in our business, you know, um, and again, it's, it's, you know, with Instagram, and LinkedIn and all these things, it's, it's, um, it's possible to network very effectively, so do that. Okay, um, Rachel submitted a question and uh, she would like to ask, why do you think Bristol has become a centre for creativity? Well, I can only say it's 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 a great city for it. I mean, it's well I don't know it's well placed um, geographically. It sits in a good place. Um, there's a vibe about Bristol, isn't there? There always there just always has been ever since I moved down here. You know, um, a vibe in, in in music and in you know street art, of course, uh, and in animation and in theatre. Which it's, it's there's something about it. I mean, it's a, some people, um, people visiting Bristol, people outsiders, strange outsiders, um, sometimes think it's a bit kind of, um, I don't know, a bit sort of new age or something like that, uh, which I, I, don't, I don't see it that way at all. I just see it as a dynamic place. And it's, it's it, and we're, we're fortunate. We're a fortunate city, for sure. Prosperous city. Yeah. Two huge universities. These are all good things. Um, I always think, we could do more. Heaven knows we could do more, you know. Um, uh, and luckily, there are always people around who have the who have the vision and inspiration to push on and do the, and do the next thing. Because that's um, you know, the creative life of a city depends on numbers. I think you know, there's a there's a kind of a there's a kind of um, a, a glowing ember effect, you know. If you've got a fire with sufficient embers, ash, yeah, glowing embers, then 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 you can 
pile more wood on and it'll, ca it'll catch. If the embers burn too low and it's, it's dusty and cool, you know, it's very hard to get a twig to catch. Bristols has that effect, that, that effect of, of glowing embers so that new ideas can, can catch and do well. But it's true also that you do depend on individuals with, with vision, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think Dave and I did that accidentally, although we didn't know we were doing it when we came to Bristol, but we came to Bristol, set up this small company. Bristol was not the obvious place to be, but it's, it's, actually, it's quite interesting. Why, why are we here? Why are we in Bristol? Because I was born here was one reason, and Dave's girlfriend was at university here. That was the other reason. These are the fine, carefully honed logical reasons why we're in Bristol rather than anywhere else. But also, we had fond memories of it. You know, we knew it was a good city. Um, and we came, uh, again, with no intention of creating a, um, any kind of empire, but... But as we built, I know that did have a spin-off effect, um, as with the, you know, the natural history business in Bristol as well, classically. Okay. We've had a quite popular uh, question. Uh, this one's anonymous. I don't know who's posted it, but it's, why did you call it Ardman? Ah, ah splendid reason. <laughs> splendid question. <laughs> um, well, well, luckily, Luckily, we showed that cartoon I showed, the, the drawn animation cartoon I showed right at the start. That was Ardman. But how would you ever know that? You Nobody would. Um, I mean, really, Dave and I, we created this um, superhero. Before, I mean, all before the company, actually, it was a joke. You know, we were, we were 16 years old, we were at school together. It was kind of a joke. Uh, he, he was called Ardman, which was, <laughs> which for no other reason than, than that we thought that Ardvark was a very funny name for an animal. So we took the Ard of Ardvark and the man of Superman, and came up with this name Ardman. And it's, it's, it's ludicrous because, because you know, um, he has no Ardvark attribute. He doesn't eat ants. He doesn't, you know, live in the burrow. He doesn't come from South Africa. But it sounded, it sounded funny to us then. And so that was it. And then that first animation I showed you, um, the BBC, we, we sold it to the BBC. They contacted us, they said, um, to whom shall we make out the cheque? We're talking about the 20th, 20th century now. Who should we make the cheque out to? And, um, and we, we said, our domain animations. We, we discussed Pete and Dave animations, you know, we discussed Lord Sproxton, and had we chosen these, then our names would be really, really well known and we'd be really famous, but, but we chose Ardman, that means just about nothing. And it, and it, and it works so well, doesn't it? Um, it works, yeah, we, 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 I remember one year, I can remember, we had a, a, a cold um, studio in Hot Wells. I remember vividly sitting there, going through the list, trying to think of a new prop, proper grown-up name. But we stuck with that. We stuck with our name, obviously. obviously. Uh, and then when I see it now on a film, I feel great. I feel, I feel very proud of it. It seems like a strong name, even though it means nothing. Yeah. Uh, another question we've got here is, will Morph have his own trail around Bristol at some point in the future? Oh, yeah, totally. He should, shouldn't he? He totally should. 
Yeah. I would like that. I, I would love that. Um, I don't know. The, the real answer is I don't know. Um, you know, the other trailer, I mean, Gromit was so prodigiously famous around the world that, that uh, and Shaun the Sheep too, you know, that, that, that this was for the, um, the Grand Appeal, for the Children's Hospital charity. And, you know, because they had an international appeal, that was a very strong thing to sell. Um, more f who I love dearly, doesn't, he's not as well known, he's not, um, still, he should totally have his, have his own trail, totally. Okay, we've got a question from, I think it's from uh, Jemina, um, she says, uh, hi Peter, thanks for your time, how do you determine whether to use claymation or CGI to tell a particular story? Oh, that is a good question. That is a good question. Um, yes, that's very interesting indeed. Um, because we're making those decisions a lot, um, but um, but animation is a slow process. So to say we make them a lot, <laughs> the decisions uh, span long periods. Um, I can only say that now. There's a huge enthusiasm for stop motion in, uh, internally within the studio. I mean, there's, you know, when we get new ideas, what, tell me what happens. We get a new idea and we think, oh, yeah, that's interesting. That could, that could be, uh, maybe it could be CG or it could be some sort of, um, some uh, hybrid thing, you know. Uh, and then the, the potential directors normally say, oh, please let it be stop motion. Because why? Why? Because it, it it is because making a stop motion film is so much better than making a CG film. I mean, I'm sorry to CG people out there. You know, full respect. You know, lovely work, brilliant work, love your work. Congratulations. But but stop motion is more fun to make because what you saw in that clip of the pirates, you know, it's it, it, <laughs> well. When it's not when, when coronavirus isn't rampant, um, it's sociable. It's 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 physical. You, know, you work with your hands. It's dirty. You know, there's 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 metal and plasticine and resin and latex and wood and steel. It's 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 craft. It's craft. And there's a bunch of people, and you can all you know. It's very very collaborative and so on. And the, the actual location, the studio location, is is a, is like um, a paradise. I, I can tell you, it really is. And again, we can't enjoy it properly just now because of the sodding COVID. We can't enjoy it properly, but um, when we can, it'll be such a pleasure to go back onto the studio floor again. Uh, I say that, of course, we, we, people are on the studio floor now but in in the safest possible conditions so so therefore me tipping up as a tourist um is not such a good idea so it's it, but anyway you get these sets um there's you got a huge um big old studio it's divided up by by wooden partitions and black drapes it looks like nothing but then you pull aside the black drape and you peer it, and inside it's like aladdin's cave there's some beautiful place some amazing structure, uh, beautifully lit with lovely puppets on it, and so, so that's why we do. So people want to do that, you know, they, they, and the directors want to do it. Um, there are certain subjects 
we've got a couple of the books which honestly it's not a good idea it'd be so difficult to do in, in stop motion and so much so much be easier and freer and have much more visual potential to do it cg so uh, and um you know to be clear i mean i i, I was jo i was joking i was joking earlier on i am big i'm a big fan of cg we've got a a fabulous series a kids series um which i won't name because i, I never i never know what i'm allowed to say you know there's a, what's 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 officially out there but a really great kids series that we are um, just starting on which is entirely cg and that's great and um you know i'm i'm going to be so proud of that when it's done uh, we've got some more stop motion things in at the moment in the studio but we have yeah absolutely um cg plans as well so um yes there there are practical considerations especially you know, scale spectacle if the if the story needs scale and spectacle and you know, fluidity and so on then then cg is good um but if the story is is all about you know character then then, then stop motion is great you know it's very funny that we love doing stop motion and i know that the public like watching it i'm happy i'm delighted to say the public like watching it and and then they don't just like watching it. they take it to their hearts they care about it as we do so that's great i'm so so happy that's the case um but um you know the cg um can do so much more you know can do so much more now you know the kind of stuff that they do at um pixar is jaw-dropping isn't it yeah the, the sort of the sort of worlds they can create it's it's, it's amazing so um i have had full respect the only one that makes me a bit queasy is um a uh, studio i greatly love which is Leica in in um in oregon just because their films are so perfect that they stop looking like stop motion i think that's kind of strange i think for me here's a, here's a serious point there's there's magic in stop motion and i, and I use magic in a quite old-fashioned sense i'm mean, like in the, in the sense of a, a magician a bloke that comes on stage and pulls a rabbit out of a hat you know like like you know it's impossible you know it's you know it's a, it's a cheat but you cannot see how it's done and you believe it and to, to know how it's done and to believe it no to to see it and 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 believe it even though you know it's not true i think that's there's magic in there and you see it also with puppetry like um with the muppets or yeah muppets kermit the frog you know he's a frog made of some green fabric it's quite clear and his eyes don't move he's not alive but 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 when he starts moving by god he is to all intents and purposes he is alive and that's why it's magic because you you know you know what is a puppet and you know he's alive and that's fantastic that's that's magic which i don't think you get with you don't get quite the same thing with cg whatever magic whatever glorious glorious visions you get what is the what is a beautiful cg film except a beautiful film with great characterization yes absolutely great you know story and characterization these are the you know so important acting these these are things we care about um but what else is it? Just a bunch of zeros and ones in, in a computer. Yeah. So I, th I think we're uh, probably on to the last question for you, Peter. Okay. And uh, yeah. Neil has the following question. 
he says, uh, how important are budgets in your work? Are there times when budgets have A, got in the way of a better outcome for maybe a film? <laughs> or, or B, <laughs> the lack yeah. of budgets inspired creativity? Ooh, well, thank you. Yeah, I hope the latter. That's the, I hope the latter. I mean, how important are they? They're bloody important. They, they really are. Um, and yet, I can sit here and honestly say that I can't even read a budget, which I can't. I mean, I can look at it. I can look at it and nod intelligently as if I understand it. But really, I don't. I certainly don't make budgets. And, you know, skilled people, very smart, skilled people make budgets. And it's, you know, um, it works. It works always. Sometimes it, some, it limits what you, the budget limits what you do sometimes, of course. Um, and then... You know, is the budget is the budget in control of creativity? No, I don't. But no, it's not. It's not. But it is there as a as a I don't know what a, a check. You know, it's, it's part of the picture, and and creative people have to work around it because budgets aren't infinitely extendable. Although sometimes it it seems they are more and more, but uh, they're not. They're not infinitely extendable. Um, now, but the, the, the other way of looking at it, um, spur to creativity, yes, I would hope that it, it can, it absolutely can be. It's, you know, here at Ardman, uh, and with my extreme age, um, I, it is true that I have a lot of experience working different ways, um, and working with small crews, working, and working with tiny budgets and that sort of thing. And so I know that things, that, that in a way things can be done cheaper. But it is very hard when you get to be a big studio like this, when you're carrying a lot of overhead, you know. Uh, it's, it's hard for us to work. It's hard for us to be cheaper. So we have to, you know, um, get get into up the budget or do a bit less or, or otherwise be very, very smart. Um, but, but you young people out there starting out, um, you know, you really can let uh, make a, make a virtue of of, um, yeah, of lack of budget. I think and do as much as you can. You know, if you you, I mean, I'm not. I know this sounds maybe sounds patronising, but I see it the whole time. You, know, you see it with student films made on a small budget, and they've done amazing things. And you think, wow, wow, respect. You know, you you've achieved far more of your few bucks than 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 we did back in the day. You know, I, I really do see some great stuff done. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, it's just gone uh, quarter to, um, so we are going to bring this to a close. I'd like to say thank you so much, Peter, for answering all the questions so thoroughly and for a really, truly and uh, um, memorable and inspiring talk this evening. Um, it's been really great to see the passion and creativity behind Ardman. And I would also like to thank everyone watching at home. I uh, hope you've had a lovely yes. evening with us and um, please stay safe and have a good evening. For more information about the Bristol Lectures series, including other podcasts from the series, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow hashtag Bristol Lectures. Mm -hmm.